This is the Build Wealth Canada podcast, session number 15. Welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast, where it's all about becoming debt-free, accelerating your wealth, and taking control of your money. Now, here's your host, Cornell Schreiber. Hey, it's Cornell, and today I'm really excited to have Bruce Celery on the show from Money Sense Magazine and Moolala.ca to tell you all about how to save and invest for your retirement. Now, Bruce is a best-selling author, and you might have actually seen him on TV as he's been on CTV, he's been on CNN, BNN, MSNBC, as well as the Lang and O'Leary Exchange with Kevin O'Leary from Dragon's Den and Shark Tank. He is also the author of the book, The Moolala Guide to Rocking Your RSP, which is actually a fantastic book that I would recommend to everyone. In it, he actually does a really good job of inspiring you to take action when it comes to planning and saving for your retirement, which I find is really good if you know this is something you should be doing, but just aren't feeling motivated enough to do it. He also provides a great step-by-step guide in a book on how you can actually pull all of this off. Now, as is customary on the Build Wealth Canada show, we do have another giveaway for you and all Build Wealth Canada listeners. So you can enter to win a copy of Bruce's book by signing up for free at buildwealthcanada.ca. Upon signing up, you'll be automatically entered into the giveaway and you'll get more expert interviews like the one with Bruce as they get released. Plus, you'll also automatically receive a free guide on the top five personal finance and productivity tools here in Canada. Now, if you've already signed up to buildwealthcanada.ca, then you can still enter the contest. And all you have to do is either follow Build Wealth Canada on Facebook, or you can email me a question that you'd like answered on a future episode of the show, and you'll automatically be entered into the giveaway as well. Of course, don't forget to check out Bruce's tips and articles over on moneysense.ca. And you can also learn more about Bruce on his site, moolala.ca. So, Pause this podcast, go to buildwealthcanada.ca right now to sign up and enter the giveaway, and then let's get into the interview. All right, Bruce, welcome to the show. Thank you. So, Bruce, to start us off, why should Canadians even care about saving for retirement through their RSPs and their TFSAs? Because they need some money to put groceries into their fridge. I don't know about you, but when I'm no longer drawing a paycheck, I am still going to be hungry. And I would like to be able to eat. And I say that only half tongue in cheek because we know that for most people who have held down jobs, they will qualify for CPP, OAS, maybe GIS. They'll have something coming in from the government, but it's not going to be all that much money. So when you think about the life that you want to have when you're no longer drawing a paycheck, what's it look like? How much is it going to cost and where's the money going to come from? So savings, whether you do it in an RSP or a TFSA or under your mattress, however you do it, you'll need a nest egg in order to have principal to draw down and ideally some investment income to go into your bank account to buy, I don't know, what are you going to buy? Cheetos? I'm going to buy like Joe (laughs) Louis. I'm going to have, I don't know, maybe some beer, (laughs) stuff like that. Sustenance. Right, right. Right. Makes sense. (laughs) And what are the top mistakes that you see Canadians make as well when it comes to their RSPs and then just retirement planning in general? Number one, the number one, the most common mistake of all is being oblivious to the importance of this as a part of your financial well-being. So most people are like, la, 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 I have no idea. I don't want to. And then they wake up 
in their 40s, maybe in their 50s, and go, oh, my God, this is a disaster. I've got to fix this. So the number one mistake is that people are oblivious. But the number two, and they're, they're correlated or they're connected, is they don't think about and dream about what they want to actually do when they're no longer drawing a paycheck. So, you know, we talk a lot about retirement savings, and after a while, it sounds like Charlie Brown's teacher, that you, you tune it out. You're not interested in doing it. So it's so important to think about some activities that you want to do. And that could be, I don't care what it is, truly, I don't care. I want you to think about where you want to travel to, what hobbies do you want to have, what do you, do you want to have a second home somewhere, do you want to hang out with your grandkids, what do you want to do? Because that gives you three huge benefits. First, it outlines your vision. So we know great leaders have a vision. You're the leader in your retirement. So if you don't have a vision for it, nobody else is going to. Second, it gives you a sense for how much it's going to cost. And that's an important and relevant component to how much you need to save. If you're going to have a simple retirement, you know, in a farming community in rural Alberta, it might be less expensive than if you want to winter in Miami. So you need to figure out how much it costs. The third thing is it's going to give you some motivation because it makes retirement Real. When you think about it in specific terms versus just acronyms and, you know, tax returns and all that kind of stuff, when you think about it in real terms, you're way more likely to be motivated to take the actions. And that's truly, that's what most of this boils down to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, just to make it real. And I found in your book when I was reading it, too, you had some of the best guides, I would say, or the best guide that I've seen to date that actually walks you through step by step and says, okay, here's how you actually figure all of this out. Um, because it's it's pretty overwhelming, I think, to a lot of us. And it's obviously impossible to predict that far up the ro down the road, yeah. uh, every little variable, right? But I really liked how in your book, you, you provide some different tools that we can use. Yeah. And some just, just to make it a step that we think that we can follow and, and actually do and break it down into manageable pieces, as opposed to retirement planning being this giant overwhelming thing yeah. and we just think you know what this is a little too much i don't have time for this and then you don't worry about it until you're 40 and then you start panicking because you haven't started saving for retirement yet yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure yeah so bruce speaking of your book um in it you talk about the five steps that listeners can follow um to, in order to be able to successfully plan for the retirement and even retire early if they if they pull it off uh, in a certain way. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about the five steps? Yeah. So the first is lay the foundation. Number one, lay the foundation. And this, at its essence, is figuring out what you want to do. And as I mentioned, I don't care what you want to do, but I want you to think of something. So if you love pets, maybe. <laughs> this is my <laughs> game. It's a rubber chicken dog toy. If you're listening to the podcast, it's uh, yellow and it's outrageous looking. It's a rubber chicken dog toy. Some people love their pets, so you could, um, you know, hang out with your pets. This is a uh, plat. This is from Dollarama. It's a uh, paint holder. If you're going to be an artist, I don't know. I've got some gardening gloves here, some knee pads. I really love props as a way to visualize uh, what it is that you're going to do. So if you start by laying the foundation, and this is the step that most people skip because it's not on your financial advisor's uh, radar, but start with the dream, start with the vision, start with what excites you, and then you can move on to all the other stuff. The second is 
determine how much you're going to need. These are my very fancy measuring cups uh, in multicolors. There's green, there's yellow. It's really important to do the basic calculation on how much you need. And, uh, you know, like all good baking recipes, not cooking necessarily, but baking, the measurements are important. And that uh, how much do you need calculator factors in things like uh, investment return, uh, how old you're going to, how old you're going to be when you die, how old you're going to be when you retire, so how long that period of time is. And it puts all those factors into a calculation that'll um, show a nest egg. And it's an approximation. I don't care so much if the number is right. I just want you to uh, have a number because then you can refine it as you age and get older. So lay the foundation, determine how much you need. And then the third part is develop the plan. And we'll, we'll, why don't we talk about that in more detail? Because that's well, a meat of it. Uh, but then that's where a lot of people stop. They've got a plan useless, completely useless if all you have is a plan. What you need to do next is take action. This is a uh, bedazzled running shoe. For those of you who can't see it, it's purple and silver. It's very fancy. Um, and really, Nike said it best when they said, just do it. If you have the plan and you don't do anything with it, then you have completely wasted your time. It is uh, not helpful. So what I talk about in the book, and we can talk more about, is what are the hurdles between one having a plan and one actually taking action on the plan. And then step number five, rounding it all out, is staying engaged. And staying engaged is a function of habits. Some people have great financial habits. Some people have terrible ones. But that's really at the heart of it. And I use the metaphor of brushing your teeth. I hope you brush your teeth, Cornell. Do you brush your teeth? I do. do I do. I do actually. How often yes. do you floss? Uh, I try to aim for once every two days. That's good. It's very good. Yeah. I had to put flossing into my day timer because <laughs> it was not a habit. So I put it in my day timer, and after a month, it became a habit. Much of what we talk about in personal finance is simply not a habit for people. So they're not used to contributing to their RSP every month. They're not used to doing all those kinds of things, rebalancing the portfolio. So I want people to focus on the habits that will deliver them the biggest benefit to their financial well-being with the least amount of work. Because I do not want personal finance to become your hobby. You have better things to do. Most people have better things to do, stuff that gives them more joy than focusing on their how much do you need to retire calculator every night from, you know, 7 to 10 p.m.? It's great if you do that work, but you should, I don't know, you should watch House of Cards or gamble <laughs> online. Virtuous activities like that versus <laughs> personal finance. So I would, that's really step number five is staying engaged and focused on focusing on your habits. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I liked actually as well in your book when um, part of it you talked about uh, automating the process as well. Um, so, so you have these good habits, but also there's there's ways that you can automate it so that you don't have to worry about it and it just happens. Um, and what also I found in your book that was unique to some of the other ones I've read is that you also address the fact that what if someone is self-employed or they have very uh, sporadic income? Yeah. So maybe, for example, like a real estate agent or an entrepreneur where you might have a big windfall uh, every once in a while, but you know you don't get that consistently same paycheck every single month month so you actually talk about that and 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 how to uh how to plan for that so i thought that was really really neat um because i'm in that boat so so it's nice to uh uh yeah it was it was, it was definitely a different uh strategy that's that's not commonly talked about but really important because a lot of us do fall into that yeah, category sure. as well yeah 
Yeah. Um, so, no, that's great. Thanks so much. Now, um, moving on to my, my next question, more so about using an RSP to purchase your first home. Um, so some individuals, they may be saving for a down payment in their home, uh, uh, for a down payment uh, for the future home, and they would like to put that money in an RSP, and then they're planning on using the home buyer's plan to be able to take that money out. Uh, can you talk a little bit first about what this home buyer's plan is for maybe those who haven't heard yeah, of it? Yeah, it's a great initiative by the government to allow people to save for a down payment for their home and at the same time earn the um, get the tax refund of an RSP. So it allows you to withdraw money from your RSP, contribute that to your first home, and then as soon as that deal closes, you have to start paying it back over the course of the next 15 years. So if you're going to do it, you need to know that you're going to have the cash flow flexibility to pay back that home buyer's plan, uh, but it can allow people who think, geez, I, I don't know where I'm going to get the money from a down payment to use their the funds in their RSP to do that. If you're just starting out and you're you know 23 and you're just starting to save for a down payment, whether you do that in your RSP and use the home buyer's plan or save in a TFSA, it's kind of, I'd say it's kind of a wash. I would have deferred up until the recent changes to the TFSA to the home buyer's plan, but these days it's pretty close. Really what you want to be doing is saving as much as you can for your house, and the home buyer's plan can be a really great way to do that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and if you're just starting off, you're probably in a low tax bracket, so you could be using that TFSA um, quite well. And and with that higher contribution room that we just recently received as well, yeah, for for sure I can see how that that makes it a very good tool. Um, to use for that too. Yeah, no, that's great. And then in relation in relation to that, what a, if you are, let's say, saving for a down payment uh, on, on a house, let's say, obviously you don't want to put into anything risky because you want to make sure that, you know, if you want to buy that house in a year, you want to make sure if the market plummets, you're, you're still able to buy that house in a year. Where would you recommend Canadians invest when they're saving for something like that? Uh, obviously, you know, bonds come to mind or ETFs, uh, like bond ETFs, GICs come to mind. But the rates right now are so low that it's really unattractive to a lot of Canadians. Yeah. So in terms of safe vehicles, what, what would you recommend? You're not going to like my answer. Okay. Cash. Oh, really? I know. <laughs> I've struggled with this, truly, and I've done a bunch of stories on it. I've talked to people in the industry. There simply is no place. So in these days of low interest rates, there mm-hmm. just isn't as a vehicle that is safe. Sure, you can put it in a GIC, but maybe you're going to get 2%. And let's say you put your uh, down payment in a GIC, and to get the best rate possible, you lock in. And then you see the perfect house down the street. You you, oh. you can't get out of that GIC. You can borrow against that GIC. But that is a whole other level of complexity, and it costs you money, and so, you know, I don't know that there's that much of an advantage to putting in a GIC, putting it into a GIC versus just in a high interest savings account. If you run the numbers, it's it's kind of a rounding error unless the, the uh, amount of that down payment is substantial. So I, I struggle with that. I wouldn't uh, get something, get into something super fancy and do a bond ETF just because it, the, the delta is not significant enough, in my view, to make it worth your while on with low sums. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, that's an interesting perspective. Yeah, because you're right. If, if you decide, okay, I want to buy a house in a year, well, maybe it's you're 10 months in and you see the perfect house that is has a really that's a really really good deal. Yeah. And so at that point, you should actually execute, yeah. as opposed to saying, oh no, hold on, I'm actually. 
I, you know, I'm still locked in for a little bit more. I guess we'll have to let that one go and hopefully we find another house in the future. So that's a really good point. Yeah, you do want that flexibility, especially when, when the time gets closer, because for sure you, you maybe you find that dream house and you just can't wait. Uh, you, you have to, you have to pull the trigger basically. I'd feel differently if you could get 5% or 6% on a GIC, mm-hmm. but when they're two, less than two. Right, right. Now, what about, let's say someone's saying, I'm going to start saving up for a down payment right now. For sure, I I will be nowhere close to say to getting there for the next let's say three years down the road. I'll then I think I'll actually have enough for a down payment. Let's say right. So what about in those cases where those first maybe two years or something? It's still hard. It's still hard Mm -hmm. because um, the best rates on GICs are ones that you lock. And so mm-hmm. you put in your first, say you put in your first two years in the GIC, but the additional cash, you, it's small amounts. You're not going to be able to um, just simply add that to your GIC. And if you buy an ETF, if it's like 500 bucks a month, that transaction cost is going to make the purchase of that bond ETF uh, unprofitable to you because you pay, you know, 10 bucks to do. Oh, so right, right. These are all... Mm-hmm you know, little nips and tucks here and there. The big idea to me is how can I increase my income and cut my spending such that my ability to save is more significant. Whether or not you earn 1% on the money or 3% on the money, is that's at the margins. But where you can get a bonus at work, take a second job, take a roommate into your basement, rent out your parking garage, like those Mm. are the kinds of things that could be material. That's a great idea. Yeah, instead of sort of trying to find ways to get that extra percent or half a percent, like you said, tr- focus on some of these bigger items, like maybe, yeah, rent out your basement or, or rent out or a room in your house. And at that point, you're not dealing with these small amounts. You're actually getting a huge boost in your income that can go directly towards saving for your down payment. Back in that's with it. your parents. That's right. <laughs> the, the, the most efficient way to save money right there. Just move back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's great. Now, what about somebody that maybe is no longer not looking for to buy a house, but maybe they're getting close to that retirement age. They're looking for something a little bit safer as well. They don't want to have to, they're worried about having too much of their money in equities. What are some recommendations that you have for those individuals? Well, I'm a, I, my view of the investment marketplace is very, very simple. So what I talk about in both my books is uh, low cost ETF investing. And mm-hmm. I think for many people, not everybody, but many people, that makes a ton of sense. So you've got a very simple portfolio, maybe made up of four ETFs. One of them's a fixed income ETF. Maybe that is around your age. There's a, a lot of discussion about how much fixed income one should have. And a part of that relates to practical risk tolerance. And a part of it relates to psychological risk tolerance. We can talk more about that. But uh, sure. the rule of thumb I still use is fixed income equals age uh, it, with someone who doesn't have some other backstop on income. So, for example, if you happen to have a defined benefit pension and your retirement is really just augmenting things, then you probably don't need any fixed income in your RRSP because you've got this guaranteed defined benefit pension that is going to take you through through thick and through thin. So you can uh, afford to take more risk on the equity portion. So it depends on lots of different factors, but my starting point would be a portfolio made of uh, made up of four ETFs. And one of them is fixed income. It's approximately equal to your age. As you head into your 50s and 60s and you get set to retire, that amount might decline. Or, sorry, might increase, rather. Might increase. Right. 
Mm-hmm. And then I assume the other three ETFs you're referring to, one would be Canadian broad market, one would be U.S., and one would be international? Good. Or you read my yep. book. Are you careful? <laughs> or did you read the book? I, I did read the book. I did read the book. What am I thinking, <laughs> what am I thinking now? What am I thinking? Uh, you're, you're thinking what prop to use next for the, uh, <laughs> you've got, you've got me curious what else you have up your sleeve. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's great. And actually that, that, um, I'm going to jump ahead to one of the, the questions I was going to ask a bit later is when it comes to ETFs, are, do you recommend strictly focusing on broad market ETFs or, or broad market index funds, or do you like to tweak it a little bit and say, okay, maybe uh, let's have a certain percentage in, let's say, emerging markets. Let's have a, a percentage in, let's say, small cap stocks. Uh, do you do anything like that? And what are your thoughts on taking it further like that? I don't. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think most people shouldn't simply from the perspective of complexity. Now, as mm-hmm. you can imagine, I see Canadians of all um economic backgrounds, educational backgrounds, interest in personal finance, all that stuff. And when you aggregate where people are at, the level of complexity needs to be fairly low. I write about something called the priority pyramid and focus on people um, having positive cash flow, getting rid of debt, saving something, taking advantage of tax vehicles. And once you've got investment performance that meets the benchmark, which is basically what a passive ETF portfolio will do. Once you're there, if you want to optimize and do things like small cap and sector specific and emerging markets and whatever else you want to do, hedging, all those things, hooray for you. But uh, it isn't necessary. If you can just get yourself to the position where your portfolio is approximating global benchmarks, you're doing so much better than most other people because most people aren't doing anything, or they're blindly investing in uh, products with very high MERs, management expense ratios, and so they're slipping behind the performance of the index, and they're oblivious to the cost of those fees. So, yeah, you could do that, but I don't feel really strongly about it because uh, I see how uh, low-complexity people currently are, and I want to take them up the levels of the ladder, but they don't need to get to the tippy top of the ladder in order to be successful. Right, right. And I can see someone just getting started off. I could see that really intimidate yeah, a new investor as well. It's too much. Um, uh, you know. Mm-hmm. For me, it would be a really big deal to jiggle the toilet so it stopped running. The thought of replacing the toilet seat, oh, my God, or actually replacing the entire toilet, let alone changing a sink. I mean, I would just burst into tears, crawl under my bed with a box of Oreos. I'm not doing any of that stuff. And some people who are very handy would, you know, they'd retile their bathroom and have a great old time. That's not me. So when you think about uh, the do-it-yourself component of personal finance, what can you actually do? Well, you actually can get in there. And uh, if you are a DIYer, come up with a great portfolio of simple stuff. And if you're working with a financial advisor, and by the way, lots of people do and, and do so successfully. So I'm totally not against that. I think those are great relationships. Uh, but you'll still begin with something fairly simple and low cost, efficient, just so you're not uh, giving your performance away in fees. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. I think it's... Um... Yeah, I remember when I first started investing, you know, you pick up some of the flyers from the different uh, providers and, and you see those giant, those flyers with all the different tickers and, and the dozens and dozens ETFs that, that you could possibly buy. 
And, you know, fortunately, when I got to that point, I've already researched it ahead of time. So I didn't get intimidated by it because I already knew what I was looking for yeah. and what I need. Um, and But I can see how if someone's just starting off and they say, okay, let's let's get into investing. I should really learn about this. And they, they, they look at something like that at all the options available to them. It, it's almost like you want to just throw in the towel because it's just, just it's way too complex. <laughs> and then, <laughs> exactly. The chicken agrees. <laughs> Exactly. That's what they want to do. Yeah. So no, for sure. So I, I like your your point about uh, to, to first focus on not try to go right away for this complexity and and then just kind of stick with the basics um, because yeah, that, that's really all you need to get really good performance anyway. Yeah. Now, Bruce, going forward, can you explain a little bit about what an RRSP loan is and when it is versus when it's not a good option? So basically, and there are a couple of different types of RRSP loans, but basically what they allow you to do is borrow money from an institution, potentially a bank, so that you can make your contribution and maximize the tax refund that you have. Uh, so that's good once to do some sort of a catch-up to get yourself sorted. There are two things to, re to remember. First is it's a loan, and you pay to borrow money. Now, Interest rates are super low. It's not a lot of money. And when you do the math, you can absolutely see that it would be beneficial. Uh, my bigger issue with RSP loans is my concern that it masks a deeper issue. And the deeper issue is that you've not sorted out your cash flow to be able to contribute to an RSP on an ongoing basis. So rather than get an RSP loan, what I would focus on people doing is analyzing their cash flow and figuring out how they can increase income, cut spending, whatever they can do, such that they can save that amount of money each month, or in the case of an entrepreneur or someone with volatile income, a percentage of each uh, check that they receive, such that they're doing it the way it is intended to be done on an ongoing basis and not sort of, uh, you know, racing to the finish, getting an RSP loan, and then having to deal with paying off that loan. Better to mm -hmm. sort it out so that you've got that automatic transfer coming off your bank account and do, just do it right over the course of the year. Now, that's not a strongly held opinion. Uh, the math is quite compelling when you look at, um, you know, borrowing and then having your tax refund pay off the loan. Hooray. It's just, a, again, it's a level of complexity that um, I don't know that most people want to sign up for. Right. So let's say someone is right now currently they work full time. They're taking, let's say, 15 percent of their paycheck and they're investing it right away. in let's say, you know, broad market ETFs, let's say, or, or mutual funds. And they're doing that. Should they not even you know, worry about RRSP loans if they get approached by, let's say, their, their banker and they say, hey, you should really you know, consider doing this. What, what would your would your recommendation be? Just to say no. Or? Yeah. yeah. You know, you're allowed to do that. Right. Bank <laughs> Did you know you're allowed to say no? Uh, now, what I would see is how you could take that uh, from 15 percent up to 18 percent. And then right. you've maxed out your RS. Maybe you've got contribution room from the past that you could catch up on um, and think about it holistically so that your cash flow. I mean, for everybody, really. Retirement is just one piece of where they want their money to go. There is a mortgage. There's probably savings for kids' education. There's dream vacations. There's savings for cars, all those kinds of things. And so I love to think about your life in a holistic fashion and match up your uh, finances to what's important to you. And 
you know, I, the, the debt of any kind, I am culturally averse to uh, mortgages being a notable exception. But to the extent that you can pay your way, pay as you go, I think that's advantageous. For sure. For sure. Yeah, that's great. And Bruce, also, when we're calculating our when we're planning for retirement, you know, we have our spreadsheet up there, we're trying to figure out how much we need. When doing that, obviously, we have to take into account inflation since we are looking at such a long time frame. How do you personally factor in inflation when you're doing your own calculations? Do you just take your rate of return and, and then subtract inflation and kind of use that as a number? Or, no. or do you have some method Much that you simpler. prefer? Much simpler. Okay. I use an on, online retirement calculator. And okay. it, that'll factor it in for you. Um, mm-hmm. So, and you need to, we talked a bit about this, but you need to take that calculation with a grain of salt. Uh, it, it is a really wide rule of thumb, like a Shrek size thumb <laughs> versus a rule of thumb that can be applied to everybody. But I'd encourage you to play around, with the, you'd encourage, encourage you to play around with the variables because then you can sort of get some sense of what's going to be required. I also think of it as, what do I want to retire versus what do I need to retire? Because for most people, um, there's a higher aspiration for life in retirement that uh, exceeds just roof overhead and Bud Light in fridge. Most people want to do stuff like hang out with their grandkids or whatever it may be. And those activities, in particular in the first decade of your retirement, can be quite expensive. The other thing that we don't talk enough about is the three phases of retirement that most retirees, unless they die early, most retirees go through. So there's the active retirement, maybe that's from 65 to 75, and then there's the at-home retirement, which maybe is 75 through 85. I'm making up all the ages, but, uh, and then the retirement that may require some sort of, uh, significant cost in care. So maybe that's in-home care. Maybe that's a, a long-term care facility from 85 to 95. And obviously we're not all living till 95, but there are for most retirees, three phases. One in which they take these world cruises and spend buckets of money. The second, where they don't spend all that much money because they're living at home and gardening. And the third, which they can be spending lots of money because they need live-in care or they need a long-term care facility that's five grand a month and it's not covered by the government, whatever it is. So it's difficult, especially for someone who's um, 30 years old, who doesn't know a lot of people in that circumstance and doesn't have parents who are in that circumstance. Someone uh, at my age, <coughs> years old, I can see You're not 30, Bruce? Not, I, thought, I thought you were talking about yourself. That's the makeup. That's why. <laughs> uh, I can see it with my own parents who are in their late 70s, and they're both happy and functioning and all that stuff, but I can see with their cohort um, that they're going to be predictably increased expenses as they require more support uh, outside, from outside of their family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so would a good way to factor that in be to say, okay, I'm using an online calculator and we sort of have the worst case scenario and we have the probably maybe most likely scenario based on what you know and then sort of the nice scenario where either you're healthy for a really long time or the markets do really well for you, whatever the case may be. So you have sort of three different scenarios and then you just you make sure that before you pull the trigger before you retire that that sort of worst case scenario is taken care of 
Uh, would, would that be a good yeah, approach, or would you factor that, that in? Now, okay. it depends on your age, too, how uh, in-depth that calculation is. If you're in your 30s, I just want you saving as much as you can. So, you know, can and still live a great life. Because uh, I don't know if you know this about me. I actually do not believe in frugality as a virtue. <gasps> I know. So shocking for a personal finance guy to say that. But I don't. I believe in making informed choices about how you spend your money. And uh, I don't think frugality is a virtue or a vice, nor do I think spending is a virtue or a vice. It's really down to individual choice. So some people with eyes wide open make the choice to spend in their pre-retirement lifetime. And if they go in eyes wide open and then they've got nothing more than government benefits in retirement and maybe the roof over their head, okay, that was the choice that you made. And um, so you'll just need to live with that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Gotcha. Okay. Now that sounds good. That sounds good. <laughs> so, so controversial, Bruce. With I am very controversial. <laughs> <laughs> Very controversial and a big swearer, as you. <laughs> well, I haven't had to bleep anything out yet, so thank you for limiting my uh, my editing time here when this podcast is over. <laughs> no, uh, just just a couple of quick questions. Do you still have a few more yeah. minutes, Bruce? All right. Um, one quick question is regarding um, RSP contribution room. Let's say you have a spouse. That is maybe a stay-at-home parent, and so they're not. Yeah. You know, they have some contrib RSP contribution room built up. They haven't used it all up. Um, is there a way to be able to uh, use? Uh, so you're in a higher tax bracket. Is there a way to be able to use some of that contribution room for yourself? Yeah. Uh, well, if okay. you for your spouse. Oh, uh, for your spouse. Yeah. 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 So a spousal RSP is a great initiative to allow you to split income in retirement. So basically what you want is when you're retired for you and your spouse to have as close as possible the same size of nest egg. And the reason is that if um, you say you've each got a nest egg that spins off 50 grand in income, that's you're going to be paying less tax, 50 grand and 50 grand, you each paying 50 grand, than one person with 100 grand. And I'm making it a very, very simple um, calculation here. But if the uh, lower income spouse saved nothing and only the higher income spouse did, that nest egg, when they start to withdraw it, is going to cost them in more, more in tax. So two things to know about a spousal RSP is your RSP, the higher income earner, your limit is your limit. So say you've got 20 grand in contribution room, you can put some into your RSP and some into a spousal RSP, but it's 20 grand. That's all that you've got. Um, secondly, the plan is theirs. So the money goes to them. Now, if there was a marriage breakdown, it would be taken into account, but it's theirs. They can control it. They can do whatever they want with that money. Uh, and that's important to know just before you set those kinds of things up. Okay. But, you, but I, for example, during that, let's say they're just not working for, let's say, a year because they just have a child or whatever the case may be. So you, there's no way of saying, okay, um, I'm going to increase how much RSP contribution room I have so that I can go down into an even lower tax bracket, for example. I can't basically steal their RSP contribution room for myself. No, to lower you can't steal contribution room for them, from them, no. Gotcha. You can steal right. money from their wallet. You can steal <laughs> their friends, perhaps, but you cannot take their contribution. But by, by steal, I mean mutually Borrow. agreed upon things. 
<laughs> this this question took a turn for it the worse. Sure now we're talking about now stealing are, when, <laughs> If you were to talk to a great accountant or a mm-hmm. um, great financial advisor, there are other ways to uh, split income in ways that are completely on board, above board, and all that stuff. Okay. So, for example, you run a business and your spouse is your bookkeeper. So, if you pay them that money, they then have earned income. They will uh, pay tax on it at a lower uh, rate than if you paid tax on it because the profitability of your business will decline because you're paying a bookkeeper. Uh, They'll build up uh, RSP contribution room because they have earned income. So there's Mm -hmm. like a whole other podcast on income splitting, but uh, great accountants and great great financial advisors can give you some wisdom on how to do that. I am neither. I am neither a financial advisor or an accountant. I'm just a journalist. Gotcha. Sounds good. Yeah, I was thinking more, you know, in those sort of situations where, let's say, one person's in the, in the highest tax bracket, whereas the other one is in the lowest because they're not earning anything because they're home with the kids. Yeah. Is there a way to lower that in the, that that person that's earning that, let's say, you know, six-figure salary to lower theirs even more than they normally would be able to because their spouses aren't working? But it sounds like, no, the answer is no, but there are other options, legal options you can consider. Uh, but that's kind of where you get into the more, you talk to an accountant, hopefully you have a small business set up where you can make something work there. Yeah. yeah, makes sense. Okay, no, that's great. Thank you so much. Well, um, all right, final final question uh, about annuities uh, and, and using annuities for retirement. Can you define annuities first, just for those that maybe haven't listened yeah. to a previous episode? Um, and then kind of what, what are your thoughts on them as well? Well, I, I'm a fan, uh, especially for those people who don't have a defined benefit pension, because basically what an annuity is an insurance product, you buy it, and then it gives you money regularly that kind of is like a pension. So say you put 500 grand into an annuity and you pay that and then whatever the monthly amount is becomes a secure part of your income. It's cheaper to buy the older you are because the actuaries will calculate your life expectancy and see that, you know, if you buy it at I'm making these numbers up. If you buy it at 40, it's going to cost you uh, more than at 70 because a certain portion of people will die between uh 40 and 70. So, you know, I, I think it's probably something that I'm going to do when I retire because I don't have a defined benefit plan. And then I'll have that as one element of my income. When I retire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. One, one strategy that I thought sounds pretty appealing is to purchase one or something I'm going to consider at least when I'm older is to purchase one to just cover sort of those bare essentials just so that, you know, worst case scenario, you're still not eating cat food. Basically. Yeah. Right. And then uh, and then all the rest is basically just because you've been investing through your lifetime. Yeah. So that way, no matter what happens, even if the market, you know, your first year in retirement and we have another 2008 happen, let's say, you know, that way you're still OK. I'm, I'm still going to be OK. There's still some uh, something that I have as a cushion. I don't have to necessarily draw down my portfolio as much because of it. So so that's kind of what I was thinking. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's great, Bruce. Thanks so much for for your insight on that. Um, yeah, that, that's all. That's all that I had for my questions. Can you tell the listeners and viewers a bit more about where they can learn more from you and everything you've got? Yeah. Um, well, I am a columnist for Money Sense Magazine, and all of my blathering is found at MoneySense.ca. So, uh, and it, not just me. Great, 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 great writers there. Uh, my website is Moolala.ca. My Twitter handle is at Bruce Celery, S-E-L-L-E-R-Y, celery like vegetable, but spelled differently. And uh, if anyone has any questions, please 
please feel free to reach out in any of those ways. Because uh, I'm jazzed about this. Everything that I do is about inspiring people to get a handle on their money so they can live the life they want. And uh, why I'm so jazzed about inspiration is that drives behavior. And if we don't change behavior, nothing's going to change. And so you can live the life you want. There's a lot of moralizing in our culture about what you should spend your money on, what, uh, you know, what is going to send you to heaven, what's going to please your parents. I don't care about any of that stuff. So if you want a full round of plastic surgery and that's what's going to make your life happy, fill your boots. <laughs> Just sort out your cash flow and your savings such that you can have the best whatever part of it is you want to improve. Uh, and I think the the moralizing isn't helpful. So um, have the life you want, get a handle on your money, and uh, a little moolala along the way. Sounds good. That's great. Thanks, Bruce. And, yeah, for anybody listening that maybe isn't as excited about personal finance, like, like myself and, and Bruce, maybe you find the subject a bit boring or you're having trouble getting motivated uh, to, to start saving for retirement, uh, just, just read – the first few chapters of Bruce's book. He does a really good, uh, some really good exercises in there about talking about what you what you may want in retirement. It helps you visualize it, and that actually I found it very very motivating um, for anyone that really maybe isn't into this uh, to, to sort of say, hey, you know what, this is something I should look into. This actually can be enjoyable. Um, so yeah, definitely definitely check out his book, and I will have the show notes, uh, the link to that in the show notes, as well as all the different ways that you can reach Bruce as well. Um, so yeah, that, that's it, Bruce. Thanks so much for for coming on and for sharing your your knowledge with us. It was my pleasure and the chicken. As well. <laughs> <laughs> the chicken looks extremely happy. <laughs> I, I've never seen a happier chicken, happy. to be honest. He hasn't been eaten by the dog yet. <laughs> What's that? He hasn't been eaten by the dog yet. He's happy now. His his days are numbered. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Bruce. Take care. Bye. <laughs> Well, I hope you enjoyed the interview with Bruce and just a reminder that you can enter the giveaway to win a copy of Bruce's book by going to buildwealthcanada.ca and signing up for free. Once you do that, you'll also get all the latest expert interviews as they get released and you'll also automatically get the free guide on the top five personal finance and productivity tools here in Canada. All right, have a great week. And if you enjoyed the episode, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you are an iTunes user, I would greatly appreciate you leaving a review there to help bring on more great guests like Bruce. That's all for now. See you next week with another expert interview. Thanks for listening to the Build Wealth Canada podcast at www.buildwealthcanada.ca.